Good morning again. Glad to see you here today to worship with us. We're going to address the subject this morning of what does God owe me? I suppose that we have all driven by people standing on the corner of an entrance or exit ramp to the freeway holding a sign, we'll work for food or something similar. I heard of one man who was a little more honest than most. His sign read, I need a beer, not work. Of the many in reality that have this sign, most want a handout. But some try to be, at least appear genuine and offer to work if given the opportunity. If you were to stop and offer many of them a job, I suspect that you would hear that they had many excuses why they needed cash rather than work right at the moment. We have a generation of people in America that think that they should be supported, that they not have to work. We call that entitlement. But even among those who do work, sometimes our work ethic gets a little bit twisted We work for perks, not for a living. We want regular bonuses. We want appreciation awards. And for sure, we want yearly raises. We want a corner office with a window, an expense account, company car, if possible. And I realize, of course, that those perks are nothing wrong with them. And I do know that they exist in the corporate world. What happens, though, if we don't get those perks? Well, we mumble and we groan. And then we may start having to take more sick time and the projects they're assigned to us somehow don't get finished on a timely manner as they once did. All sorts of other negative behaviors may be manifest because we have not achieved those perks like we thought we should. Somehow in our day and age, having a job and a paycheck is just not enough. Now let's translate that into the Christian world. Same attitude seems to have crossed over from the secular world and into our church work. Just the fact that we are saved from hell and going to heaven is not enough. Pastor better pat me on the back regularly and if not, he's not going to get much out of me. If I teach, then I think that everyone should recognize that it is my right to be a teacher. If I do teach, I think that my giftedness should be recognized. I would like for it to be quite, quietly and tastefully recognized that I am the best giver in the church. If I'm a singer, then I want to be asked to sing a solo as often as I want. If I'm a man, then I should be in a leadership position, preferably a deacon. The list could go on for a long time, but you get the picture. What happens when we lose our perspective of being servants? Well, we have a little roast preacher once in a while. By the way, that's not very tasty. Our attendance may 
be sporadic. Of course, that means that our responsibilities have to be carried out by someone else. While we pout at home, or are we looking for a church where we are more appreciated? If things don't go our way, then all of a sudden the deacons are lazy and the teachers are dull and boring. We just do not feel the love of the Spirit in the church anymore. We suddenly have outgrown the preacher and we just aren't being fed anymore. He must be backslidden because he's not really preaching anymore. But even more important, the attitude begins to affect at how we look at God. He's just not blessing us like we deserve. He just does not understand our needs or what we have put into serving him at an ungrateful church. He has forgotten that we are the most spiritual people in that church and that neither our giftedness nor our wisdom is truly being appreciated. God is just so fortunate to have me, and he just doesn't seem to recognize it. They just don't realize what they would be up against without me. Well, let's look at it from God's viewpoint. In last week's message, we saw that as Christians, we have a twofold responsibility to others. First, a responsibility to not be a stumbling block. And secondly, a responsibility to forgive those who have sinned against us. When the disciples realized that Jesus was teaching that they had to forgive those that they hurt them repeatedly, they were overwhelmed. Their response was basically, Lord, this is too much. I just can't forgive others like this. It's beyond my abilities, and I need more faith to do this. They felt incapable of adhering to or living up to Jesus' high standards on forgiveness. The disciples thought that they lacked sufficient faith and Jesus responded that what they lacked was an accurate understanding of faith. Jesus told them it was not so much a matter of great faith as it was obedience to a great God. Given the immense requirements Jesus had given to his disciples not to cause others to stumble, to confront those who have sinned against us, and to extend unlimited forgiveness. A disciple might presume in doing so that he or she merits God's approval. Jesus destroys such thinking with a mini parable called the parable of the unworthy servant. And it is found in verse 7 through verse 10 in our scripture today. The text is one of those passages that we tend to want to skip over and get on to more interesting matters. But what we find beginning in verse 7 is a very important teaching that Jesus has about how we are to relate to our Heavenly Father. Would you read along with me as I read verse 7 through 10? 
And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will we not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, saying, we are unprofitable servants, we have done what was our duty to do. Now at first glance, this story seems to be hardly the kind of story that Jesus would tell. The plot line is pretty simple. There is a demanding master who works his servant from sunup to sundown until he is dead tired and then he expects that fellow to make supper for him. But rightly seeing this story has the potential to help us to adjust our attitude towards serving from self-pity and entitlement to gratitude and humility. I want you to notice four things with me this morning. First of all, we are called to faithfulness in ordinary tasks. The first part of verse 7 serves as the introduction to the story. And which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep? Now, notice the task that is given the servant in today's terminology would be doing manual labor for minimum wage. Fred Cranick in his message to pastors caught the practical implications of dedication. Thank you, Brother Harold. I appreciate that. This is what he wrote in the message that he gave to pastors. He said, to give my life for Christ appears glorious. He said, to pour myself out for others, to pay the ultimate price of martyrdom. I'll do it. I'm ready. Lord, I'm ready to go out in a blaze of glory. We think of giving our all to the Lord as like taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on a table. Saying, here is my life, Lord. I'm giving it all. But the reality for most of us is that he sends us to the bank and has us cash in that $1,000 for quarters. And we go through life getting out, giving out 25 cents here and 50 cents there, listening to the neighbor's trouble instead of saying, I don't care. Going to a committee meeting, giving a cup of water to a shaky old man in a nursing home. Usually giving our life for Christ isn't glorious. It's done in all those little acts of love, 25 cents at a time. It would be easy to go out in a flash of glory. It's harder to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. We're called to faithfulness in ordinary tasks. Second, our service is only the rightful fulfillment of our Lord's reasonable expectation. 
as we continue with the story in the remainder of verse 7, we find that it is divided into three rhetorical questions. Question number one in, the, in verse 7, and which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come into the field, come at once and sit down to eat? Jesus, first of all, <clears throat> appeals to our own common sense. If we had a servant and he was working in the field during the day, all day long, when it came to dinner time, we would not tell him to sit down so that we could prepare him something to eat. The question is, who would? And the answer is, no one. Question number two, found in verse number eight. But will not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterwards you will eat and drink. So the answer is anticipated and the answer is yes. If it were part of the servant's job to cook for us, we would expect him or her to get busy and prepare a meal in a timely fashion. We would expect them to prepare the meal, wait on us, and when we were finished, then they could eat. The third question is found in verse 9. Does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. Well, this treatment may seem harsh and even unreasonable to us today. It was a fair description of the normal pastor servant I mean master servant relationship Jesus did not comment on that relationship he neither approved it nor condemned it he merely used it to illustrate his teaching on a life of faith the anticipated answer to this question is no in fact it is a strong negative in the Greek language that the servant would not be thanked for doing this. Why? Because they're only fulfilling their responsibilities. The slave received and deserved no special treatment or thanks for doing their assigned task. They were his duties. Our servants is only the rightful fulfillment of our Lord's reasonable expectation. And third, we must never have the attitude that God owes us or be upset that God did not do something that we have asked. Verse number 10 says, So likewise, when you have done all these things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. We're God's servants. And to make it even more Politically incorrect, the Greek word is doulos, and it means not servant, it means slave. Today we are consumed in our country with our rights, but slaves have no rights. In reality, as Christians, we are twice bought. God owns us, first of all, through the right of creation. He has made us. And secondly, he owns us through the price of redemption. He paid to redeem us 
from sin. Thus he owns us not once but twice. A modern illustration can be seen for this in the principle in the fact that we as American citizens are expected to pay our taxes. By April 15th of this year, you will be expected to fill out an income tax form and submit it along with the supporting facts and figures. Along with that form, you will be expected to send a check for any additional taxes that you might owe. If Jesus were using this as an example today, he would say, should the person who has completed his tax form and sent it in expect a thank you note from the IRS? No. Would you expect to receive a thank you note from President Trump saying, thank you so much for paying your taxes? No, you would not. Paying our taxes is a duty one to which we do not expect any appreciation, any expression of gratitude, but one that we can expect punishment if we fail to perform. The word unprofitable can be troublesome to us. It means without needs. That is, no one owes us anything. The statement means that the master does not owe me anything extra. We forget our status as servants. We are bought with a price and we are not our own. The apostle Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Jesus is telling us that we have nothing to get puffed up about when we actually do as he is asked. That is the way we are supposed to live. And when we do, we have only done our duty. The argument is this. If a common servant is faithful to obey the orders of his master who does not reward him or thank him, how much more ought we to love our master because he has promised to reward us graciously? The Apostle Paul, which again reminds us in his letter to the church at Rome. He wrote in Romans chapter 12, verse one, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, I beg you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, to God, and then this statement, which is your reasonable service. Fourth, God rewards faithfulness, not because he has to, but because he wants to. I don't want to end this sermon without recognizing that although God owes us nothing for our service, he intends to reward us richly. The Bible speaks of rewards in terms of crowns, and there are a number of them. I will only mention two of them. 
Paul wrote of the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4.8, which would be awarded to the faithful. And Peter wrote of a crown of glory in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4. And Jesus is recorded as saying this promise, that he would bring his reward with him when he comes. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. As we wrap up the sermon, we still are tempted at times to, to feel a little let down, that we have not got what we deserve, that the enemy will sometimes come against us and say, you know, if you didn't tithe, you could have that new boat. You could have that motorcycle. If you didn't give money to the church, you could do a lot more for yourself. Besides, you're not really being recognized and you're not really getting what you deserve. Ray Steadman tells the story of a faithful missionary that I think illustrates this point very well. It says, years ago, I heard of a missionary couple returning from Africa in the days of Teddy Roosevelt. It happened that after years of service, they came back on the same ship as President Roosevelt, who was returning from a big game hunt in Africa. When they pulled into the New York Harbor, there was a band playing Teddy Roosevelt's favorite songs, and all the high officials of the city were there to meet him. But the missionary couple slipped off of the ship unnoticed and they rented a run-down apartment on the east side of New York. The man was utterly crushed, and he said to his wife, it just isn't fair. It just isn't fair. Here we are. We don't have any money. There is no one here to take care of us, and we don't know what we're going to do. God has promised great things, but nothing is happening We've given him everything that we've got, and what has he done for us? But just look at what happens when the president returns from a big game hunt. It isn't fair. His wife said to him, dear, I know it isn't fair, but that isn't the right attitude to have. You mustn't think that way. Why don't you go into the bedroom and talk with the Lord about it? and see what he has to say. And so he did. He went in and he knelt by his bed alone. He was there for a long time, but when he came out, his face was alight. And his wife saw that something had happened. And she said, what happened? And he said, I got down on my knees and I poured out my whole story to the Lord. I told him that I thought it was unfair, and especially that when we come home, the president got this big welcome, but no one cared for us. I told him that he was treating us all wrong. But you know what the Lord said to me? It was almost as if I could hear his voice. He leaned down and he said to me, you're not home yet. Isn't that gloriously true? We're not home yet. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you. In those times, there are times that we feel like we're not being properly appreciated. That even in those times, you don't turn your back on us, but that you remind us of what you have done for us and are doing for us, and we're not home yet. Oh, what a glorious day. When we close our eyes here on earth and open our eyes in heaven, when we see for the first time your face, to behold you and to recognize that heaven's not about all those glorious things that we've heard about it, and jewels and streets of gold, but it's about being present with you, our Lord and Savior. We recognize that we owe you. You don't owe us. That we have been already bought twice. That you own us because you created us. But even more importantly, you own us because you redeemed us. Father, there may be someone in this place this morning that has never been redeemed. They've never placed their heart and life under your control. They've never recognized that they are sinners and cannot save themselves. And they have not called on Jesus to be their savior. It would be our prayer that if there is one here today, that in that condition you would speak to their hearts. You'd help them to understand that right here, right now, that they can turn to you and in repentance and faith ask to be saved. For those of us who are saved, help us to readjust our attitudes. Attitudes recognizing what we've been given, not what we're lacking. How that you have treated us in glorious ways, even in this life. And no matter how bad we think we have it, we have it better than we deserve. Father, help us to be profitable servants grateful servants. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.